If you have a Bible, you can turn to Isaiah's prophecy. We'll look at chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And the text is also printed in the bulletin for you on the next page. And this is the last time that we're going to look at this passage together. Uh, we've been looking at, at it together uh, throughout our Advent series. Uh, so this is the fourth Sunday of Advent, uh, the fourth time we've looked at it, the fourth name that we're looking at. So the, the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, we're on the Prince of Peace. These names, um, these names can really only refer to one person. These are very special names, very meaningful names that are given to us in Isaiah's prophecy. Uh, these names can only describe Jesus, who is the only true God come in the flesh, the Savior of the world, the Lord of the world. We've seen uh, in our series on this passage how Jesus, as the wonderful counselor, has come to teach us his startling wisdom, his controversial uh, wisdom, his spiritual wisdom. How he himself is the center of our life with God, that we need to know that. That it turns everything upside down for us, but it makes everything right for us. And if we want to know how to live in relationship with God, we've got to look to Jesus. We've always got to look to Jesus. We've seen how Jesus, as the, the mighty God, has wielded a different kind of might. Certainly different than what we expected. Different than, than what is... Uh, usually uh, exercised in the world. He's wielded a different kind of might or power that his uh, might, his kind of power, is seen in his ability to become vulnerable for love's sake. Becoming a silly floppy baby headed on a collision course with the cross. That was the exercise of his kind of power. We've seen how Jesus, as the everlasting father, he cares for all those under his authority as for his own children like a good king, how he provides for our life with God. He's the source, he's the fountainhead, he's like the father of a new humanity. And this week we're going to see how Jesus, as the Prince of Peace, is the royal official ruler of God's kingdom. He's the true peacemaker who brings reconciliation to enemies, uh, brings reconciliation to the estranged. That's what we'll talk about this morning. Let me pray and we'll read the scripture. Father, you love your people. You sent your own son into the world because you love people, even people like us, people who certainly don't deserve your love, your good care. We who were your enemies, while we were your enemies, you sent your son for us, and you've, you've told us about Jesus through your word. And here we have a word written about Jesus before he was born, long before your son was sent into the world for our salvation. We pray that you would help us, uh, give us eyes to see and ears to hear about you, about your goodness, about your love, about the peace that is found in the the Lord of Peace, the Prince of Peace himself, as we consider your word together this morning. We pray for your Spirit's help in Jesus' name. Amen. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. 
For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. So we live in a war world. People are constantly fighting. You know that. Um, There are global conflicts between far-flung nations. There are conflicts between uh, people of different ethnicities, people with different politics, people with different religions. There are marital conflicts between intimate life partners, not just between strangers. Deep, painful conflicts between lovers, fighting all the time. There are shouted condemnations. There are whispered threats. There's volcanic rage. There's cold malice. There are shootings at the train stop and stabbings at the bank, things that we've seen just this week in our community. People are constantly in conflict. That means either they're trying to to win whatever version of victory they're looking for in the conflict and fight, trying to win and get the upper hand over the other, or eventually cut off the relationship and create distance to get relief from one another because we just can't take the fighting anymore. So we just end things. This is the result of sin. Pure and simple. It's the result of our breaking our relationship with God. The relationship with God that's supposed to be at the heart of everything that we do and the way that we relate to everybody else. When we violate that, we reject that, then... um, then you've got problems in our relationships and you've got fighting. And James describes the, the self-centeredness that is at the root of our fighting. He says in uh, James chapter 4, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So if you were in the middle of a shouting match with someone, and you could try this out at home uh, when your kids are yelling at each other or when your spouse is yelling at your kids or whatever it is, uh, run this test. A third party comes along and asks, stop for a second, why are you fighting? Why are you fighting? you would instinctively say it's the other person's fault in some way. He's being mean, or she's being stupid, or whatever. I actually see that a lot in um, marriage counseling when couples are fighting. I'm not going to expose anybody's secrets here. Don't worry about it. Uh, But Tim Keller, Tim Keller has a great book on marriage that I've prescribed for premarital counseling and also for marital counseling when things are hard and somebody wants 
help, and they get really desperate and even ask me for help, then they come and they, we say, let's read this book together. Keller recognizes that conflict is a regular part of relationships, and he says that the best starting point when you're in conflict in a marriage, it's not everything you need, but it's the best place to start. It's the best place to start is when each spouse believes and can honestly say, my own self-centeredness, my own sin, my own selfishness is the main problem here. That's why we're fighting. Because of my self-centeredness. Every single time I've ever brought that up in marriage counseling, every time we've read through Keller's book and we've looked at that over and over again and we've talked about it, <clears throat> every time the couple in conflict says, oh, I get it, I see, my sin is the main problem. That's why we're fighting. Five minutes later, they're fighting in front of me again, blaming each other, blaming each other as the source of the conflict. You always do this. You're so mean or you're so stupid or whatever it is. Right? You might want to blame your conflict, the reason why you fight, on others, on the other party. But it takes two to tango, my friend, and you're participating. You're participating. You're fighting because of what's going on inside of you. And the scriptures label it. They say it's because of your self-centeredness. It's because of your sins. It's because of your broken relationship with God. It's what we do because we're sinners, because we put our own desires above others. We put our own comforts and our own interests and our own claims might even call them rights, but our own rights above others. When we were meant to humbly consider others more significant than ourselves. And this is how the triune God lives. That's how he lives. The Father constantly, eternally exalting the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Son constantly, eternally glorifying the Father and the Holy Spirit. The one at the heart of reality, he has his very being in other-centeredness. This is how he exists, in being other-centered. And he's made us in his image to share in this kind of relational life, this other-centeredness. Not, not fighting. God has never fought. The Father's never fought the Son. The Son's never fought the Father. That's, <clears throat> that's not how divine life works, and that's not how we're made to work in his image, to share in his image and share in his kind of relational life. Our sinful, self-centered fighting is a revolt. It's a revolt not just against our created nature, not just against the world. It's a revolt against God. It's against the one who established the foundations of reality. When we fight... We're attacking God, we're attacking his good creation, we're attacking his image in other people, we're attacking his kingdom, and our revolt against God means mutually assured destruction. Paul writes in Galatians 5, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. So sin-driven conflict is everywhere in this war world. It's a point well illustrated by the context of Isaiah's prophecy. God's people had continued for centuries in their rebellion against God. And the judgment, the consequence for their sin that God decreed, that God himself decreed, was international conflict with other sinners. The Assyrians, and then the Babylonians after them, they were hungry. They had desires. 
They had desires for new lands that they did not yet dominate. And they were willing to fight and take what they wanted by violent force. And so they come sweeping in. And the northern parts of the kingdom of Israel, they would fall first, Zebulun and Naphtali. The parts around the Sea of Galilee, which bordered on the lands of the non-Jewish, the Gentile nations. They would fall first, and it said uh, right before our passage, at the end of Isaiah 8, for them it would be distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they would be thrust into thick darkness. And that's a good description of what it's like to live in revolt against God. And in conflict with other people, always in conflict with other people because of our sin, because of my self-centeredness. It's like gloom and thick darkness. When we, we can't set the interests of others before our own, but everyone's just an enemy to be fought in order to get what is mine. The people of God, um, they didn't just need a savior to stop their enemies, to stop those bad Assyrians, and stop those bad Babylonians, and eventually the Romans, and whoever else comes along and wants to oppress them. They needed a savior to stop enmity, Enmity itself, not just their enemies, but the whole idea of enmity, especially enmity with God, to bring us back into the peace that is only found in God's kingdom. So Paul Tripp writes this about this passage. It says, Sin makes us the enemies of God and casts us into constant conflict with other people. Sin is antisocial and destructive, making us better fighters than lovers. But God had a solution, and it would not be a negotiation. It was a gift. This gift was one that we could never achieve, earn, or deserve. Peace with God. And peace with God is the only road to lasting peace with one another. And that's what's promised in the Scriptures. That's what's promised in all the Scriptures, but especially in uh, in our prophecy. But here, in verse 5, you see, Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult... Every garment rolled in blood be burned as fuel for the fire. Or Psalm 46, he makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and he shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Or Isaiah, uh, earlier in Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 2, it says, He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. These are the promises of true peace that we find throughout the scriptures. When the Prince of Peace comes, the weapons and implements of war will be destroyed. When the, peace of, when the Prince of Peace comes, war itself will be destroyed. Enmity itself will be destroyed. And of, his in, of the increase of his government and of peace... There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. So Jesus, the Prince of Peace, he's the blessed peacemaker. The Son of God, the Prince of Heaven. The, the, heaven's the place where God's presence is definitive of the experience. And where everything is characterized by real peace. True peace rules there. True peace reigns in heaven because of God's presence there. And Jesus is the Prince of Heaven. And he came from heaven to bring his peace to earth. And when he came in the flesh, which is the incarnation, which is what we celebrate this time of year, the Christmas time, the Son of God becoming also a human being, Jesus Christ, 
He was born into the house of David, the son of David, and so he's the prince and he's the heir of David's kingdom. He's the prince of heaven and he's the prince of Israel. And just as the kingdom of Israel was never meant to exist for its own sake, never at any point in its history is it meant to exist and just be blessed and have peace for its own sake, but to be a blessing to all the nations, so the son of David did not come to bring peace only to Israel, but to bring peace that expands throughout all the earth, making the whole earth like heaven from where he came. And the place on earth where he's doing this is called the church. It's called the assembly. The gathering, the the ingathering of the peoples. The church is where we have peace in the name of the Prince of Peace. Only in the church are we reconciled to God. Do we have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ? And therefore, peace with one another in his name because of the one who rules over us because he is the Prince of Peace. Only in the church. It's like we read, uh, it's like Berta read in the New Testament reading from Ephesians 2. By the blood of his cross, Jesus has made peace between nations, between Jews and Gentiles in the church. That's where the peace is. It says, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostilities, reconciling us both, Jews and Gentiles, that's like all the peoples of the earth, summed up in that phrase. He's reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross, killing the hostility. Killing the hostility. Not just vanquishing an enemy here or there, but killing enmity. Jesus came to bring peace between Israelites and Assyrians and Babylonians and Egyptians and Canaanites and Romans and Greeks and Ethiopians and Americans and Mexicans and Russians and every other kind of people who walk on the face of the earth from all sorts of warring nations. And he came to do it by making us one in his church through the forgiveness of sins and as we're reconciled to the Father together in one spirit in the church, in Christ's body. The Lord Jesus has taken self-centered, fighting people, and he's brought us together with God and with each other in a relationship of forgiveness and love that will never end. He's brought peace. That's the good news. That's the gospel. This is what we proclaim. He's already, he's already done it. He's already established peace between us and God and each other. It says in verse 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That kind of language, we can easily imagine it being applied to, um, to punishing. You know, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will punish you all, you sinners. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will uh, get retribution. We imagine zeal easily enough, zeal of battle, zeal in... Uh, in fighting and destroying. We can imagine the fury and the rage of a berserker king laying waste to all his enemies. That's easy to imagine, that kind of zeal. But the Lord, the Prince of Peace, has zeal to forgive sinners, zeal to pardon rebels. 
who revolt against God and against his kingdom. Zeal to reconcile enemies. Zeal to put an end to enmity and war. Zeal to unite people to God and to each other. Zeal to restore. Zeal to bless. And the church is the place where we see that the, what the zeal of the Lord does. The church is not the place where if we try hard enough to keep everyone happy, if we all put smiles on our faces and maybe turn a blind eye to offenses that are committed against me or against others, or if we do all the right things together, we all get on the same page about everything, then we achieve peace. That's not what the church is. It's not the place where we achieve peace. The church is the place where the Lord has brought peace by his sacrifice, where Jesus has brought us fighters back into God's life together, God's kind of life. If you want the peace that's offered here, if you want the the peace that the Prince of Peace offers, then you want peace with God, a relationship with him that's characterized now by peace, and you want peace with others by the blood of Christ and in the name of Jesus. That's what you want. Otherwise, you want something that God hasn't committed himself to doing. God hasn't promised to fix global conflicts. God hasn't promised to fix ethnic conflicts or political conflicts or marriage conflicts apart from the forgiveness and reconciliation of Christ. He has promised to do it in the Savior whose advent we celebrate, whose coming into the world we celebrate. And he's not only promised to do it, he's done it. And the only ones who will live in Christ's eternal kingdom, his ever-expanding kingdom of peace, are those who are in the body of Christ, those who have the spirit of Christ. Because it's Christ who forgives, it's Christ who reconciles, it's Christ who goes after the stuff that's inside of us that causes us to fight all the time, helps us to confess that sin and to repent of it. It's Christ who redeems us from our sin and and restores us in God's image. So it's the zeal of the Lord. And when you pray for peace on earth, which is a pretty common prayer this time of year, you pray for peace on earth and peace among the nations, peace among all the peoples, peace in politics, which is basically just how to live in community together. You pray for peace in your marriage or peace in your family. You're praying for the Lord of peace to bring misfits and rebels together in his kingdom, in his church. That's what you're praying for. I'll close with a quote from a song that we often sing. Crown him the Lord of peace, whose power a scepter sways from pole to pole that wars may cease and all be prayer and praise. His reign shall know no end. And round his pierced feet, fair flowers of paradise extend their fragrance ever sweet. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son Jesus into the world, that you didn't leave us in gloom and thick darkness, just lost in our own self-centeredness and sin and our conflict that is a result of it, our conflict with each other, but especially our conflict, our enmity with you. We thank you that you didn't leave us in that place, but that you sent Jesus, the light of the world, the Prince of Peace, 
to restore our relationship with you, it really has been restored because of his sacrifice for us. Really, by his blood, we've been reconciled through his cross to you and therefore also to one another. That's a peace that's there for the asking. It's a peace that's there for the believing. We pray that you would send your spirit into our hearts to help us believe. We, we do believe. We pray that you would help our unbelief. We pray that you'd help us to live as those who really do trust you for our peace and our forgiveness and our reconciliation to God and also with one another. That this peace uh, being present in your church would be seen, it would be made manifest, that it would be visible to us and to our friends, this ever-expanding kingdom of peace that you rule over in your church. We think that would be a, a beautiful thing to see that that kingdom expanding in in visible ways, uh, visible ways that our friends could see. They could um, be able to point to the the Lord of Peace Himself, the Prince of Peace Himself, as the only explanation for things like this. We pray for your help. We pray in your name. Amen.